Ache Willow Chapter 9 The Name of the Dead I remember a time when I was a kid and I thought that magic was real. We all go through that phase, don't we? For some, it's getting really into vampires, while others it's crystals. For me, it was fairies. I'm not completely sure what it was about fairies that got me so excited. The whole thing started after I read an article about the Cottingley fairies. For those who aren't familiar, in 1917, Elsie Wright and Francis Griffiths managed to get photographic proof of the existence of fairies. The images found their way into a magazine and attracted the attention of various believers in other media, and even the illustrious Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The photographs were eventually shown to be a hoax, but I'm not sure I made it to that part of the article the first time I read it. I was hooked. The notorious relationship between fairies and food certainly played a part, too. The idea of magical meals that could trap a mortal in the clutches of enchanted worlds had a charm all its own. As the years went by, the fairies went from an obsession to a passing fascination to an aesthetic interest and eventually nothing. The passion for food remained, though. So you can imagine how I felt as an adult woman being accused of witchcraft. If I'd been in just about any other mood, I'd have thought the whole situation hilarious. As it stands, I feel like a deflated souffle. My patience for frivolity is spent, and I have no intention of entertaining any of these accusations. To be fair, it's not me that's being accused, but my great-grand-aunt Doris. But the accusers, self-proclaimed inquisitors, don't seem to care or bother with that distinction, and look just crazy enough to be dangerous. Do you know what the Inquisition does to witches? One of them asked me, standing well within my personal space and towering over me. Her name is Alessandria, and her partner is called Orléans. Something tells me these aren't their real names. In fact, the only thing that feels real about them is their zeal and conviction, which is what makes them dangerous. I do have some idea what the real Inquisition used to do to suspected witches and heretics. That's the part that scares me. I'm no witch, but the Inquisition didn't need much proof back in the 1860s, and I don't see why their crazy modern descendants would bother with that either. They burn witches, I mumble. My voice is weak, either out of fear or lack of energy or both. I've gone from annoyed to angry, but now I'm just ready to accept whatever they say if it means they'll leave the cafe and let me get some rest. It doesn't work. Oh my, Orléans, the short, balding inquisitor protests. Not at all. We're not barbarians, Miss Dufour. However, however, Alessandria cuts in, impatient. She digs further into her briefcase, and I almost expect her to pull out a gun to punctuate her threat. Instead, it's a stack of papers, legal-sized, that she takes out, crushed in her closed fist. We are more than ready to, and capable of, applying crippling economic and legislative pressure on you and your business. The words crippling, economic, and legislative are spat out like venom, accompanied by the appropriate amount of spittle. 
If we so much as find an inch of proof that you cavort with demons and devils, we will make you wish you'd been burned at the stake. We will find creditors you didn't even know you had and put insurmountable roadblocks between you and anything you try to accomplish. We will keep you on the razor's edge between bankruptcy and poverty. Nothing in your life will be to your name again. Financial excommunication. The last two words are hissed slowly and with so much vitriol that I might think Alessandria was the one who was the witch. All right, enough. I guess I should be afraid. Terrified, even. After all, it wouldn't take much digging to find my economic Achilles heel. It's not so much buried as it is put on display atop a dais in an ornate mausoleum. Student debts, late fees unpaid bills, and I'm sure there's still a parking ticket lurking in the shadows, even though I haven't driven my parents' car in years. Everyone, however, has their breaking point, and I've more than reached mine. If they're not going to threaten me with anything more immediate, like a public hanging or tossing me in a river with a stone tied to my neck, then it can wait. Out. My index finger pokes at Alessandria's breastbone. The white around her eyes grows huge in surprise. I don't think she gets challenged very often. We will ruin you, she threatens. You can't make the ocean more wet, I retort. Bring it. Miss Dufour, Orléans tries to placate me, his tiny hands holding his briefcase in front of him. Please be reasonable. Out, before I cast a spell on you both. They don't take that part of my threat seriously, but they do pick up their papers and drag their weird religious zealot act out of my cafe. It's a small victory, and one that I'm not sure will have consequences or not. Posturing aside, the last thing I need is new creditors knocking at my door. The door to the Aquilo never makes it shut, held open a crack by the man with the mustache. I want to tell him to go away, then rush behind him to lock the door shut. My muscles and bones beg for me to crawl upstairs to Doris's apartment and collapse on her old bed and sleep away the fear and stress and exhaustion. That's what a normal person would do, but not what a Dufour does. At least, not Miriam Dufour. The kitchen behind me whispers in my ears with a sweet, motherly voice that it can offer me the sucker I need. Why sleep when I can bake? In fact, now that I'm flush with fresh ingredients and an inexhaustible amount of tension to work out, I might as well get some real cooking done. Not now, of course. I've got a few cookie batters ready for the oven, but later. Then there's a whole chicken that's begging to be turned into something delicious. Didn't I also see some figs and balsamic vinegar in the pantry? If it turns out well, and it will, I'll see about taking some to Olivia. I owe her for the crate of apples at the very least. For the moment, I wave in the mustache man. He's got a splash of paint on his cheek, and his fingers are stained dark with whatever pigment his profession made him use today. He's followed by a few other patrons who quickly file behind the cash register to place their orders. I serve them their coffee and teas and whatever they find in the display that strikes their fancy. The process isn't as smooth as I want it to be. The coffee machine, probably sensing my weakness, is uncooperative again. I have to remake an espresso and two Americanos because whatever it is the beast spat up, no one would call it drinkable. Real pleasure is only found once the line for coffee is dealt with. 
Then I can finally prepare my cookies for the oven and start readying ingredients for some rum cake. Hot, dry air spills out of the oven when I open the door. It burns my skin and parches my eyes every time, and yet I do not learn. Probably because there's a weird pleasure and satisfaction in the pain and inconvenience. A sacrifice to the oven gods in gratitude for their blessings. Maybe that's what I should do for the coffee machine. Say a little prayer? Burn some incense? I'm not religious, but I'll totally subscribe to a caffeine-based faith. A sheet full of carefully rolled dough balls, each packed with nuts and chocolate chips and looking like little sugary asteroids, slides into the welcoming inferno. There, they will heat and soften into discs both sweet and buttery. It's not quite the chemical wizardry of rising bread or making a perfect sponge cake, but it's enchanting enough that I don't know anyone who'd refuse one of my cookies. No one with a soul, anyway. I twist the top half of a timer shaped like an egg setting it to 12 minutes. It was probably white at some point, the egg, but now it's yellowed and the numbers printed in black are half erased, rubbed off by years of use. Some have even been written back in with a marker. Satisfied, I go back towards the counter in the dining room, replenished by yet another batch of something good to eat, made by my hands. The salve I put on my tired mind isn't enough for what awaits me next to the register, though. Reading casually from a notebook like a student cramming for a test, still clad in his raincoat, Detective Aaron Wilson is waiting for me. I want to toss his butt out on the street and off my property. I'm not exactly sure how I would pull that off, though. I can't imagine trying to physically push him out, and I don't know how efficient calling the cops would be. Apart from the anxiety attack his presence threatens to trigger, I don't have much of an excuse to want him out. Maybe there's something about which side of the national divide I'm on that I can use to my advantage, but damned if I know what or how. Instead, I turn to the only means of defense in my current arsenal. Civility. Detective Wilson, I say, straightening Doris's apron. What can I get you? People underestimate the power of being polite in the right situation. It's an especially efficient strategy when you're expected to behave otherwise. I'll be the first to admit... I'm not usually very good at it. I don't suffer self-important fools like Chef Gagnon, and I certainly don't forgive duplicitous jerks like Wilson either. My go-to reaction is, more often than not, to capitulate for as long as I can stomach before lashing out. I cower until I bite. It's how I was with Gagnon for my first semester, giving in to his whims and weathering his shouting fits and creative insults until, one day, I didn't. The class had been instructed to make a roux so we could make a variety of mother sauces. As Chef Gagnon walked around the class, he would systematically chew out every student, one at a time, comparing their sauces to mud or worse. Are you trying to poison me? He asked Teresa, the girl next to me. Because this tastes like you're trying to poison me. In case you're too stupid to guess, velouté isn't supposed to taste like poison. When he got to mine, taking a sip with his spoon, he asked if I'd followed his instructions. Honest to a fault, I told him no. His way of making a roux went well enough. Any idiot can make a roux. But when it came to the velouté, his recipe was all over the place. So I used my own. Because I didn't fancy poisoning myself. 
That day, I made my first of many trips to the dean's office. If only I'd known to be civil and polite instead, lying and pretending it was his recipe I followed, I may never have gone down the slippery slope that led to my expulsion from cooking school. But here we are, and I hope that now I know a little better. Which is a good thing, I suppose. If Chef Gagnon had the leverage to get me kicked out, Detective Wilson could very well be capable of worse. So, where he might have expected the same confused and traumatized girl he'd dragged into an interrogation room less than a week ago, instead I gave him a hearty helping of professional courtesy. And it rattled him. It was an interesting reaction. I wish I'd gotten that out of Gagnon instead of his constant fuming anger. Wilson cocks his head to the side, his smile faltering, and he forgot what it was he wanted to order. For a second, he opens his mouth, as if he'd finally found his words, but couldn't manage to put them in order. I give him another moment to compose himself, but when he fails to do so, I give him a polite wink and tell him, let me get you your usual. I've only served Wilson a few times at the Aquilo, but he always took the same coffee. Maybe that's not his usual. Maybe usually when he's not cleaning up after a crime scene in an alley, he enjoys a nice tall latte or some tea. But Detective Wilson goes around with a raincoat and a notebook, trying so damn hard to play dress-up as a private investigator. Drinking black coffee is just part of the accoutrement. It has to be as usual, and as Olivia Fig told me, there's a ritual to people's usuals. And there's power in rituals. Power enough to put a detective off his guard. Yes, he finally says, long after I've started negotiating with the coffee machine. And a cookie? The last part is his way of reasserting some amount of power in the conversation. If the coffee is my way of getting ahead of him, the cookie is how he catches up by showing he's still making his own decisions. Fine. We can be on the same footing. I don't mind, but I'm not letting my strings be pulled again. Funny how you always show up when I stumble on dead bodies, I say, anticipating his line of questioning. Oh, you're the one who called 911? Detective Wilson, I answer, handing him a mug and a bag with his cookie in it. If you and the provincial police don't communicate, no wonder you haven't caught your killer yet. He flinches. Civility, Miriam, I chide myself. Remember civility. I'm sorry, I catch myself. That's not fair. I'm sure both you and Detective Lamore keep in touch. Who cares who finds the victim? The important thing is you collect fingerprints and evidence and whatever else you need, right? Great. Now I'm the one who sounds rattled and losing my footing. Wilson takes his food, but he doesn't venture too far. Looking at me like he would a rather exotic dish, or a suspect, I guess, he takes a seat at the counter. You know, he says, pausing to sip his coffee, I'm really just trying to help. Sensing he's not about to leave the cafe anytime soon and that, for the sake of civility, I'm going to have to entertain this conversation, I make myself my own cup of coffee. A strong one. I'm sure you are, detective, but I don't appreciate how you went about it. Yes, well, Helen made it clear that she also disapproved of how I handled that. He rolls his eyes and burns the roof of his mouth on scalding coffee. 
I hope the theatrics of taking a gulp of it to punctuate his statement was worth it. Helen Edna, Notary Public. My surprise savior. A friend of Doris, who, apparently, is hiding how my great-grand-aunt perished. Thinking back on the thick manila envelope that carried news of Aquilo to my doorstep, I wasn't the only one Helen Edna lied to. The cover letter addressed to each of the recipients in the line of succession claimed a stroke took Doris. Detective, I ask while he recuperates from his boiled mouth, how did you say Doris died again? I pour a glass of cold water while he finishes collecting himself, holding on to it until he answers. The cool solution to his burning problem is only a foot away. He reaches out for the glass, but I don't offer it to him. How did my great-grandaunt die, detective? She died of a stroke, he coughs out almost immediately. He's lying, but I let him have the water anyway. He'd clearly insinuated that Doris had died of something far worse than natural causes. I could press him, throw his words back at him, and push for the truth, but what good would that do? I suspect Helen got to him and got him in on her lie. She seemed to have that level of sway on the detective. Why would she do that? Why would she hide the truth from everyone down the Dufour family tree? The answer, after a moment to think about it, is obvious. Helen needs someone to take over the cafe, and whatever it was that took Doris is liable to scare people away. Watching Detective Wilson wash away the pain of boiling coffee poured down his throat, I think of why the various cousins, aunts, and uncles who were offered the Aquilo Cafe before me refused. My eyes wander around the dining room, roaming between the chairs and tables, covering the walls and windows, and painting the entire establishment in a wide arc. It's a beautiful place, cozy and wonderful. It feels a little stripped down, like it used to be more cluttered and more lived in, but comfort radiates from every corner. The smell of baking cookies certainly helps, but the welcoming atmosphere of the Aquilo breathes out of its very pores. I end my visual tour by looking behind me, at the row of wooden spoons hanging behind the counter. Five in total, with plenty of room for more. Under each, a brass plaque with a name. Melody is inscribed underneath the oldest spoon. Gnarled and gray with age, it's the largest of the spoons, measuring a solid foot and a half with a thick handle. Madeleine is next. Her spoon is also long, but the handle is thin and the end is small. It looks dainty and precious compared to Melody's. Elaine's spoon has more normal proportions, but the handle is an elegant spiral pattern and the wood looks richer. Amelia has the smallest spoon in the display and, in a way, the most normal-looking one, except that it's worn to a more extreme degree— the handles splintered and put back together, and the tip burnt. That leaves only Philomen, whose spoon is thick but smooth, even though it looks like it was hand-carved. There's no plaque for Doris, nor a spoon to go with it. Still, five generations of women had operated the Aquilo before my great-grandaunt. How old is this place? None of the names have surnames as if that were an unimportant detail in the line of women who ran the cafe. Regardless, if this is a trace of family lineage, it means the Aquilo's been in operation at least two centuries, and, considering how long Doris lived, maybe more. 
I can feel the depths of my family extending from my feet, like roots digging into the soil underneath the building. Where I thought that Aquila was just where one eccentric and distant relative had opened her little business, like the female lead in some romantic comedy, instead I find that I have a history here, dating back to the colonies. Detective, I ask, finally giving Wilson my attention again, how much danger am I in staying here? Detective Wilson did not want to answer the question. I know that because he tried every tactic to avoid it. From vague generalities like, we're all in danger to some degree, to trying to change the subject with an insincere apology regarding his behavior the week prior. He even tries to call it a night, but against my better judgment, I convince him to stay. You owe me, I say, after he puts money on the counter, signifying the desire to settle his tab. While he hesitates, I refresh his coffee and put a fresh croissant in front of him. Raincoat under his arm, ready to walk out the door, Wilson looks around the cafe, desperate for an excuse to refuse my hospitality and escape accountability. But while we were talking, the evening wore on, and eventually the dining room emptied, leaving only the two of us. I have a right to know, detective, I insist. You implied Gulliver intentionally sought me out to bring me to Aquilow, and you suspect him of the murders that have been happening here. Bodies are being found close to the cafe, and now I run into the latest victim. You say you don't consider me a suspect, fine, but is my life in danger? Detective Wilson looks into the black surface in his cup of coffee, as if he could find an answer in his reflection. Just like me, he finds only disappointment. The cup returns to the counter where he spins it slowly by the handle, but instead of pressing further, I lean in. Clara, he finally says, eyes still riveted to the coffee. Pardon? Her name was Clara, the girl you found today. Clara Payne. The woman we found behind your cafe was Anais Duchesne. Candace, Nicoletta, and Hannah were the other three victims. All of them died close to this establishment, all of them in the same condition you found Clara. Talking about the victims seems to both take a lot out of Wilson, but also relieve him of part of the burden. I don't dare ask if he knew these women. In a way, I expect that he did, at least a little. In a small town like this, everyone has at least heard of one another. They didn't straight up know each other. If he didn't know them before, he certainly did now. The haunted look in his eyes as he recites their names says a lot about how much he's invested in them. I assume he's met their grieving families, talked to their employers and co-workers, questioned their significant others and friends. To solve the mystery of their death, he's made himself a part of their lives. I don't think you're in any immediate danger, he finally says, looking up from the cup. How can you be so sure? I think whoever is killing women in Aquilow had plenty of chances to kill you if they really wanted to. I don't know what connects Clara, Anias, Candace, Hannah, and Nicoletta, but you don't fit the profile. Maybe it's because you're from out of town or too young or whatever. So the only reason you think I'm not going to get killed is because I haven't died yet? That's reassuring. The detective goes back to his coffee, his lips taking on the curl of a smile without losing anything of their haunted quality. He sticks a finger in the drink, disturbing his reflection. 
I think, he continues, that you're too close to the killer. Either he's someone you know or someone who knows you. Someone who's had access to you before and still has access to you. Until the pattern changes, I don't think you're at risk. Until the pattern changes. Without taking a sip of the coffee or a bite from the croissant, Wilson pushes himself from his stool. Calm and deliberate, he picks up his raincoat, folding it over his arm. He fishes through his pocket, finding a random assortment of bills that he drops next to his cup. Neither of us bother to check how much. If it makes you feel any better, he adds, walking to the door, both me and my Canadian colleagues have an eye on you and the Aquilo. If anyone has any plans to harm you, they'll probably think twice about it now. Good night. The chimes answer him for me, bidding him good night on his way across the street. It's the first time I see him walking around without his raincoat, and the first time I see the streets of Aquilo wet with rain. I take an absent-minded bite of the croissant before deciding I'm not really hungry and go over to lock the door behind the detective. I switch off the dining room lights and start my evening ritual of cleaning tables and sweeping the floor when I hear the clatter of ceramic getting knocked over. Regret fills my throat like emotional vomit, threatening to spill from my mouth in a scream. Alone in a dark and empty cafe after the conversation I've just had? After the week I've just endured? Detective Wilson's neglected cup rolls slowly on the counter, its contents dripping to the wooden floor. The croissant is missing, and through the threshold to the kitchen, I can see the back door is open again. My breathing comes in heavy with fear, and my hands close on the handle of my broom, ready to brandish it as the least efficient blunt weapon ever. There's no way I can leave that door open, but after what I saw last night when I went out, I'm sure I don't want to go there either. I inch towards the door, making my way between the tables and chairs piled up on top. Fear is briefly replaced by anger as I realize I'm going to have to mop up the coffee pooling on the floor. There's a skittering sound, and just as I suspected, I see a raccoon. It's just a silhouette, but I can clearly see the croissant in the vermin's mouth as it makes its escape. Why, you little... I don't care about the croissant. I have more, and I was probably going to throw it out anyway. It's the invasion of my place of business and the cavalier attitude these garbage bears have towards coming in and out and taking my things. Bursting through the back door, I can see a ringtail waving in the air before vanishing between the dumpsters. The rain has stopped and must have washed away the salt circle around the dumpster, but there's a fresh one piled high so that it doesn't dissolve on the wet asphalt. So, I guess they stole another fresh box of salt. Furious now, I walk over and kick at the circle, giving it a good swipe with the broom. Grunting my rage, I flip the top of the bin open. As expected, all six raccoons, including the small one who just stole the croissant, are huddled at the bottom, surrounded by their treasure trove of garbage. The light of the back porch illuminates them, gray fur and black masks, all looking at me like an uninvited guest. Somehow, their eyes catch the light in a certain way, and they reflect an eerie blue. The one Olivia calls the Dawn hisses at me, insulted by my presence. Soon, the one with the red tag on his ear joins in. The metallic echo from the bins turns their frustrated hisses into a cacophony of angry noise, but I am undeterred. Oh, no, you don't. I take a couple of swipes at them with my broom. I don't exactly want to hit them. 
not a monster, but if I could scare them into finding a new home, that would be pretty great. My assault doesn't seem to have the desired effect, and the citizens of Trash only get more agitated by my attack. Now they're all hissing and swiping their paws in my direction. All of us are making impotent strikes at one another, making noise but achieving nothing in the process. Their agitation wears out before mine, and after a minute of our stalemate, all six of them lie flat on their stomachs, looking up with their mouths closed and their paws tucked in. But the hissing hasn't stopped. It's only moved. From inside the metal bin. To behind me. Broom in hand, I spin around, and I'm terrified to see what I had hoped to be a nightmare. Terrifying and almost real, but ultimately a figment of my imagination. I could have forgotten a nightmare. Instead, the vision from last night is back. Again, it shambles out of the woods and into the moonlight. Even in the dark, I can see something different about the creature. I can't put my finger on it from this distance, but it seems less thin. The shape of its midsection is thicker, almost to the point of being unrecognizable. If it weren't for the struggling gait and shuffling steps, I might have thought this to be a drunkard again. One of the raccoons climbs out of the bin, dropping to the asphalt and almost killing me from a heart attack in the process. It's the little guy with the red tag. Hissing at the apparition, it scrambles, pawing at the salt in the ground. Small, clumsy hands do a poor job of redistributing the mounds of white, doing more to spread it than repair the circle, as I suspect it's trying to do. The circle. Frantic, I shoo away red tag with my broom, pushing him towards the bin. He hisses and claws at the broom, unwilling to give up without a fight. Not now, I hiss back at him. When he seems to give up, I sweep salt from the rest of the circle and repair the gap I've made with the broom. Or at least I try to, but the more I spread the salt, the more it dissolves into the wet ground. I don't want to look up to see where the creature is, afraid it'll be much closer than I want it to be, but a shadow moves across the porch light, telling me it's near. I manage to finish repairing the circle. It's not a great job, and I can see the water already eating at the thin line of salt. When I look up, the demon is right there, a foot in front of me. I hope my guess is correct, and that this salt is what kept it away last night, and that it'll keep it away again tonight, and that it will last long enough for the demon to leave. The creature is just as gruesome tonight as it was yesterday, except this time, it reeks. It's the stench of day-old meat left in the sun to rot. It's the smell of blood that's been lying on the floor of a butcher shop for too long. I gag audibly but manage to swallow my retching. The taste of vomit hovers at the back of my throat and gastric acid scorches the bottom of my trachea. Curious, almost hungry for the sounds, the demon turns its attention to me. I can see now that its lower abdomen is no longer empty. Organs, fresh and glistening, are crudely packed into the cavity, hiding the spine and lower ribs of the monster. Their vivid, living colors contrast with that of the demons, suggesting that the viscera isn't its own. Oh my god, I whisper. Clara. Aquilo is written by J.F. Dubow, narrated and produced by me, Amy Frost. 
If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred podcast platform. You have no idea how much it helps. Questions, comments? Email us at aquillow at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username aquillow.